Hey, once you get a Bible, go ahead and open it to Genesis chapter 41. Once again, guys, gals, welcome to Van City. If you're just joining us or if you're like my friend Matt, who's never been here once in his life, day in his life, this is for you, Matt. Pay attention. Um, Let me preface tonight's teaching with a bit of what we're up to. We are a church, like I was saying earlier, that's desperately seeking to learn what it means to practice the way of Jesus together, meaning we are working to not only learn the teachings and the lifestyle of Jesus of Nazareth, but to apply those teachings and that lifestyle to our own lives in the context of a community of people. So we gather here every Sunday as one big family, and then throughout the week, we gather in smaller groups called Van City Communities around a dinner table, and we take on the practices of Jesus, the spiritual disciplines, the principles of emotional health, and try to learn how to do that together. At the moment, we've just begun a new practice in our communities called Dealing With Your Past, And the simplified premise is that being a disciple of Jesus requires us to pursue spiritual health and maturity, that should go without saying, which itself is contingent on our emotional health and maturity. And part of emotional health means dealing with your past, uh, which means investigating the patterns that you've inherited from your family, your culture, your upbringing, identifying which things align with the way of Jesus, and continuing in those things while also identifying all that does not align with the way of Jesus, that you might break those patterns for yourself and for your family to come. Last week, I spoke at length about the way that the scriptures and our experience and even science affirm that the sins of parents have very real consequences for their children and their children's children. And tonight, we're going to talk a bit about how that sin has affected us and what we are to do about it. So the story of the Bible argues again and again that the primary way that we as humans are impacted and shaped, for better or for worse, is through relationships. The great injuries of your life story, the trauma, the tragedy, the pain, or adversely, the blessing and the celebration, they all arrive on the heels of our interactions with other people. Or put another way, both our most profound wounds and our most profound moments of healing have come by way of relationships. Humans are relational creatures in that way. And this means that the same is and was true of your parents or whoever raised you and of their parents backward down the timeline of your family tree and your life history. The experiences of relationships that together form the complicated shape of our stories, the relational experiences of our parents, of their parents, together they all shape the person we are this evening and the way that we operate in relationship as a result. Many of us don't realize this on a moment-by-moment basis, or in some cases, we don't realize it at all. But these inherited patterns of the past have a tremendous amount of power over us. Why do some people always date the same kind of guy or girl? Or why do some enter into meaningful relationships only to become immediately codependent as sort of their... Uh, status quo? Why do some families have eerie patterns of divorce? Why do even those who have already broken horrific patterns of abuse yet struggle with trust or with vulnerability or with healthy processing? And what we discover in study after study and in the scriptures is that unless these patterns are dealt with directly, they will always run the risk of repeating at worse or of continuing with their abstracted effects. Meaning, You may not repeat the exact same sin of your father or your mother or whoever raised you, but you may continue in the emotional baggage that has resulted from it unless you deal with it. Now, with that said, 
Let's go to the text where we left off last week in Genesis with the story of this young fellow called Joseph. Now, if you recall, Joseph appears in the story only after a long and tragic line of repetitive sin. It's a very sad motif. Abraham deliberately lies about his wife a couple of times. He puts her in danger. He hands her over to uh, another man while enjoying the great wealth that results from his lies. And then Abraham's son emulates his father's sin. And then his grandkids continue in the ways of deception. Four generations of the same patterns of sin that lead to tonight's story in which Joseph is sold by his brothers into slavery in a story littered with ongoing deceit and with favoritism and with familial discord and sibling rivalry. Now in the story, with which I'm sure many of you are already familiar, Joseph is sold into slavery. He ends up in prison. He makes friends, and then he successfully interprets some dreams. We won't get into that whole thing tonight. Uh, In such a way that he ends up getting a job working for Pharaoh, the head guy in Egypt. Uh, In fact, weirdly, Joseph becomes second in command over all of Egypt. After all this, we find him here in Genesis 41. Let's read beginning with verse 45. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zaphonath, Phineah, and gave him Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Okay, stop there. Seems on the surface an ordinary bit of narrative information, but there's something incredible in the subtlety of this record. Joseph is given a wife. And, uh, so, you know, what, what's the big deal? Who cares? Joseph's father, his grandfather, and great-grandfather all had multiple wives. Joseph has one. Given the context of the surrounding narrative, it's quite easy to conclude that this was a deliberate decision on Joseph's part. After all, the story des- describes him as wealthy, even handsome, uh, and powerful. He's second only to Pharaoh in Egypt. So against the grain of his upbringing, Joseph rejects polygamy, and it seems that he has made a choice not to repeat certain sins of his father's. Look at verse 50. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potiphar. Priest of On, Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, it's because God has made me forget all my trouble and, my father's, and all my father's household. The second son, he named Ephraim and said, it's because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. So not unlike the stories of his family past, Joseph has two sons. There was Isaac and Ishmael, then Jacob and Esau, and now Manasseh and Ephraim. And in the stories of those pairs of sons, Joseph's ancestors always preferred one son over the other to disastrous results. Heck, Joseph's own father preferred all, uh, or Joseph over all his other brothers. Uh, And he comes from a long line of sinful favoritism. But look at this story. Joseph assigns unique names to each son, both of them associated with great blessing from Yahweh. Joseph, as a father, is uniquely distributing blessing equally amongst his two sons at the point of their birth. Once again, Joseph is rejecting the mistakes passed down from his family of origin. Of course, this doesn't mean that everything that follows will be perfect, but we do see that Joseph from the outset is deciding to do things differently. The story of Joseph's family continues to unfold. And then in Genesis 42, his brothers re-enter the story, the ones who sold him into slavery. They overpowered him. They lied to their father about what had happened. They convinced their dad that he had been mauled to death by wild animals, which seems even worse than being sold into slavery. So go figure. Um, So turn over to the next chapter, chapter 42, and let's read the first few verses together. 
When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I've heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. I love that their dad is very pragmatic in this way. The 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for there was famine in the land of Canaan also. Now, Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all his people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. So in the story, there's this terrible famine, and Joseph's family find themselves sitting around, apparently looking at each other is what they're doing instead of getting food, Um, and they're starving. So Jacob, the father of Joseph, sends Joseph's brothers into Egypt to find food, not realizing, of course, that they would encounter the very same brother they sent away into slavery, who's now a ruler in the land of Egypt. The narrative unfolds with this ongoing tension in which Joseph recognizes his brothers, but they don't recognize Joseph. Now, he's the second in command over Egypt, Joseph is, so he could easily and certainly have these brothers who have so tragically wronged him dealt with in an instant. With a word, he could have them imprisoned or put to death, or he could sell them into slavery. But to do so, of course, would mean perpetuating the cycle of sibling rivalry that has endured for now four generations. Turn one last time to chapter 45, and let's see how it works out. The story unfolds, and something fascinating happens. Joseph maintains his cover for a while, and he orchestrates this interesting scenario to sort of keep his brothers in suspense. The entire thing becomes a great uh, source of stress and anxiety for Joseph's brothers. They even begin to suspect that their trouble in life must be God's judgment for their horrific sin of selling their brother and deceiving their father. And after a period of extended tension, Joseph sort of toys with his brothers a bit until they're once again before him, still not realizing who he is. Let's read chapter 45, beginning with verse 1. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. So imagine for a moment this revelation in the minds of Joseph's brothers. They have to be thinking presumably something like, this is it. Violence will beget violence. We've been tormented by this. He has every right to take out judgment on us. Sin is going to beget sin. But then, verse 4, Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been famine in the land and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So in one incredible moment, Joseph effectively extinguishes the long-burning flame of sibling rivalry by refusing to fan it. Joseph forfeits what many of us would consider his right to be angry or resentful or to seek justice, but that's not all. Read verse 7 one more time. God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Joseph not only forfeits his right to take justice, but he celebrates that God has used this heinous thing to bless them. 
the people who sold him into slavery. Not only does Joseph reject the patterns he's inherited from his father, his grandfather, his great-grandfather, Joseph subverts those patterns altogether, replacing evil with good. The way the narrative unfolds is actually beautiful if you read the whole long story. God, as a character in the story specifically mentioned, doesn't show up in the story during the favoritism. Um, He doesn't show up during the evil scheming of Joseph's brothers, but he does show up to bless Joseph in the midst of those tragic circumstances. The point is not that God meticulously orchestrated or chose this evil thing in order to arrive at this specific conclusion, but the point is that even in the horrific evil of Joseph's family of origin, evil that God hates that he does not plan, God yet brings good out of tragedy and out of trauma. Generations of defying God broken and subverted in the life of one person. The obvious question for us tonight is, how? How'd that guy do that? How is this done uh, in a practical sense? What does this mean for you and I? It's one thing to read some ancient Near Eastern narrative thousands of years in the past, but for those of us wrestling to know and understand and to break the cycle of generational sin in our own lives tonight, how do we do what he did? And uh, I'm going to argue that we go about this three ways. First, we resolve to be informed by the past. This is about mining our stories and the stories of our families for information. And to do so, we need to follow the timeline of our lives all the way back to the very beginning. When my kids were born, at the behest of our midwives and doctors, they went from the womb out into the world uh, via the process of this truly disgusting miracle. You should see it sometime. And then... Uh, immediately naked and gross and slimy onto my wife's chest and then onto my chest as well. Doctors have come to know this skin-on-skin process. They call it uh, as one of the first relational moments in a newborn's life. And that moment, this wrinkly, gummy thing is bonding with his or her parents already, already in relationship and already connected But in point of fact, most studies argue that we're already connecting before that when we're in the womb, meaning that for most of you here in this room, you have been forming relational patterns for decades. That's not an insignificant amount of relational data to retrace. I realize that. Now, psychological studies can't answer all our questions, of course, but one particular method pioneered in 1969 by a developmental psychologist named Mary Ainsworth provides a a really interesting paradigm for understanding the way that some of us relate to different people uh, in our lives. So by conducting this series of ongoing studies that she called the strange situation, uh, children that were ages 2 to 12 were put in a comfortable setting, there were toys, it was nice, And then they're monitored as their parent or their primary caregiver would enter and exit the room while a stranger is present. And Dr. Ainsworth argued that quantifiable, even at a very young age, there are at least four basic categories uh, in which most humans connect relationally with certain other humans in their life. Now, these results are not a perfect paradigm for diagnosing every relational dynamic in every human being, but Dr. Ainsworth's studies, like any, they've been debated. They're still widely taught and discussed today. The first category for relational connection she called secure attachment. And this is less than a sort of uh, all-encompassing umbrella and more like a certain mode of relational connection between one particular child and one particular caregiver. So in secure attachment, individuals experience a sense of emotional security and happiness. They feel free to explore relationally. Those uh, with secure attachment tend to believe that both their emotional and physical needs will be met. 
So the mom leaves the room in the experiment. The child becomes upset. But when the mom returns, the child is immediately calmed and able to continue playing comfortably. But many children were very different than this. The following three categories are all under the umbrella of insecure attachment. So like secure attachment, these modes can describe the way one child connects with a particular caregiver, and it could be different across several relationships. The first is called anxious attachment. Such an individual feels emotionally anxious or insecure or even angry relationally. They do not believe that they can rely on others to have their needs met, and so they pursue attachment themselves. So in the experiment, the mom leaves the room, child becomes upset, the mom returns, and the child will, child will be consoled, but with lingering frustration. The child has come to take note of the fact that the mother's presence is inconsistent and now doubts whether or not her presence is altogether reliable. It's an anxious sort of attachment. The third category is called avoidant attachment. This person is at a base level, emotionally distant. They're reticent to explore any sense of deeper relational intimacy. They believe that their relational needs will go unmet. So the mom leaves the room, child's upset, the mom returns, and the child is consoled but then avoids the mother. They install a sort of emotional distance, expressing a sense of reluctance in emotional intimacy. And the fourth and final category is called disorganized attachment. This person is depressed and angry and not non-responsive. They're emotionally confused and at a base level seem to maintain ongoing confusion with no displayed strategy for having their relational needs met or for dealing with those consequences. So after leaving the room and then returning, the mom of this child discovers that the child may respond anxiously or they may respond with avoidance. Now, we don't have to apply this data from this particular study in order to understand relational connectedness or to achieve emotional maturity at all. The point that I'm making is that we learn and develop conscious and subconscious methods of connecting from day one of our story. And psychology confirms what the scriptures have argued before it. Human beings all carry a profound, even biological and psychological need to be connected with other humans. Um, in 1981, this Canadian psychologist, Bruce Alexander, subverted traditional studies in drug addiction with something he called Rat Park. You guys ever read about Rat Park? It's amazing. Uh, ordinarily, studies on addiction at this point were done by offering an isolated rat both ordinary water and water laced with like morphine or something like that. And the rat would always become addicted and overdose and die, right? He's got two things to choose from. One of them's got morphine. Um, now, Dr. Alexander provided these uh, two options, water, normal water, water laced with morphine, to an elaborate rat city filled with all sorts of like different sexes of rats, uh, toys and exercise and wheels and all that stuff. And he discovered that there was no addiction, no overdose and no death whatsoever. And Dr. Alexander's findings changed what we know about addiction from there going, there, uh, going forward. It wasn't access to addictive materials that created addiction per se, but the need to connect with other living things or the absence of other things to connect with. Without it, we look for something, anything to connect with. The way we've connected either wonderfully or poorly with influential caregivers in our lives says something about both who we are relationally and who we have become as a result of certain relational experiences. In their book, Relational Soul, two leading psychologists discuss the role relationships play in the formation of our psyche, and they write this. The quality and character of the programming we received early in life establishes a pattern of attachment that controls our relationships later in life. This reality 
has massive ramifications on our apprenticeship to Jesus. Hence all this going on and on about it. How we function in the context of community. How we understand and relate to God as a father. Many of us assume that we can endure massive levels of relational dysfunction with our parents, with our families, with our friends, and yet step into a completely unaffected relationship with God. And I just doubt that that's true. Now, please listen. I am not saying that unless you enjoy a fantastically healthy relationship with your parents or whoever raised you, you'll never know God. Thank God that's not true. We'd all be in big trouble if that were the case. What I am saying is that whether you realize it or not, the relational dysfunction that inevitably permeates each of our life stories has, at least to some extent, affected the way that we understand and that we relate to God the Father. Why spend all this time talking about the way that we relate? Well, because the way we connect and relate to people and to God is at the foundation of all it means to be a disciple of Jesus, who himself summarized the greatest commandment of all in love God and love other people. And listen, how you see and understand yourself relationally with other people is how you see and understand yourself relationally with God. The good news is, of course, as usual, as you're at church, Jesus. Unlike our imperfect parents who, or whoever raised us, Jesus perfectly pursues us always. He enjoys us with absolute perfection. He knows us intimately, and he loves us without error. Jesus is faithful. He's constant. He chases after us with perfect compassion and empathy and kindness, and he does so of his own happy volition. So whether anxious or avoidant or confused, any of us have been given access to unfailing security in the love of Jesus. And this is something that our parents and our families and our friends, however wonderful they may be, simply cannot offer. But to access that security, we must allow the past to inform us that we may understand how we approach relationships and why. My dad was one of those uh, automotive geniuses, right? You'd come to him with some ailing vehicle and he'd stand in front of it and he'd ask, start her up. And then, uh, you know, you'd, it'd run for a couple of seconds and he'd say, shut her off. And then he'd walk over to the driver window, you know, his mouth full of dip. It was really disgusting. And he'd say, there's a carburetor or what, whatever. I don't know, whatever goes wrong with cars. Clearly, I did not inherit his <laughs> automotive know-how. But uh, as teenagers, uh, my brother Patrick and I, more often than not, we, we preferred to avoid those conversations until the car broke down, right? It's easier that way. We knew that more often than not, whatever had gone wrong probably resulted from our negligence and that dad was going to have something to say about this. And it's, uh, you know, so the car would break down on the side of some dirt road somewhere in Georgia and we'd walk to a payphone because this is before the days of readily accessible cellular communication. Vanessa, did you know that? It's a long time ago. Um, and we'd call collect, so insult to injury, on top of everything. And we'd say, hey, dad, car's broke. It's on this street or whatever. And my dad would ask all these frustrated questions. Did you put all in it? Because that's how he said oil. Did you put all in it? You know the radiator leaks? You fill it up with water? All that stuff. And ordinarily, we'd, we'd say no. We just kept driving. Uh, we, we hoped it would all work out somehow. Ignorance is bliss. And, uh, and I realized that Patrick and I sound quite dumb as teenagers now to most of you. But Most of us treat our emotional health and the status of our relational ability the exact same way. 
without allowing the past to inform us, we'll never identify the source of our malfunction, let alone repair it, let alone prevent it. And if we don't do the work of repair, then we won't enjoy what Jesus called life to the fullest. So our first goal is to allow the past to inform us. The second goal is to allow the past to change us. Information is one thing. Doing something about it is another. Once we've begun to understand the way in which we relate to others, we need to work backward across the length of our family's timeline in order to identify the source of certain relational patterns. Why? Well, to determine exactly where it came from and why it needs to change. To talk a bit about more about what I mean, I want to show you guys just a few of the generational sins and relational patterns that I've identified in three generations of my genogram thus far. It's a, it's a doozy. So far, we've got anger, avoidance, racism, alcoholism, abuse, secrecy, and divorce, to name a few. I didn't put it in the context of the overall uh, genogram, the chart of my family tree, so as not to embarrass or bring anyone to shame. But, um, and like you guys, I'm just one week into the process. It's going to get more elaborate from here, I'm sure. Hopefully you've begun, the, the, those of you that are in communities have begun this same process this last week in your community. So identifying the patterns that I want to break is fairly straightforward so far. Just like all of them. I want all of them out. Um, but I've begun to discover two dangers inherit, inherent in the often complicated process of revisiting the past. The first is the discovery of patterns already embraced. What do you do when some or all of the relational patterns we most want to erase are the very patterns that we're already repeating? I'm sure some of you are afraid of wading into this whole genogram endeavor because you know full well you're already repeating the patterns of the past and you're thinking it's probably too late. It is absolutely not too late. And please hear me on this. There is healing and restoration for you in Jesus of Nazareth, regardless of what your genogram trudges up or how far you are into it. If anything, you can celebrate the identification of a problem, of something tragic in your past, and consequently get to work on setting it right by the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Or what do you do when the surfacing relational patterns seem outrageously far-fetched? For instance, I found uh, alcoholism in my genogram and thought, well, that's easy. I've never drank. I never will. Done. Um, but just because I don't seem to have any immediate risk of becoming an alcoholic doesn't mean that I've been preserved from the consequences of that sin in my family line. There are just different questions to ask. Do I tend toward escapism at all? Uh, what is the, if I do, what does that look like? Does it look like work or Netflix or porn or social media rather than resolving my complicated problems? And you may, may think, well, look at a, a, a relational pattern in your family tree and see divorce. And you well, that's easy. I'm not married or I don't think I'm getting divorced anytime soon. But the different questions to ask are things like, are the patterns that contributed to divorce in my family present in my own life even now, or can I see them becoming present in my life based on the wiring of my personality and my relational dynamics? My point is that my theory is that none of us will discover a spotless genogram, our family tree. That's the whole point. Because when we identify what we want to change, we get to make a conscious decision to do things differently. But we have to be prepared to discover the truth and we have to maintain the humility necessary to confess things that are not just fine the way they are. We have to realize there's more for us and that we can't get there without the work of healing and we have to ask for help. 
So that healing is going to come first and foremost by way of God. This is one reason we spend so much time every week in listening prayer. The Holy Spirit has insight into our person, not even we have ourselves. God knows us better than we know ourselves, and asking God to reveal painful areas that have slipped into the quiet darkness of our blind spots can be a scary thing. I realize that. But healing begins this way. We can't change what we don't see. And we do indeed get to ask for healing. We ask that God, our Father, would heal everything beaten out of alignment by our pasts. We ask that God's Spirit might save us from the lie that we can't be safe in relationships. We ask that Jesus, our teacher, shows us what it means to enjoy safety and security in relationship with him and with other people. And this is of utmost importance for us tonight because we can identify things from our past all day long, but without God allowing, without allowing God to heal and restore and change us, what, what, who the heck cares? We can, we can point out things on a genogram all day long. Are we going to allow God to do anything about them? So from there, we begin to sort out what it means to actually live as someone who is relational, whose relational well-being has been healed and restored by God. We also ask help from other people, from the people we share intimacy and life with. After all, you can't possibly be healed in a relational sense outside of the context of relationships. Doesn't work that way. Sorry, I wish it could for you. So community is that context in which we learn and relearn what it means to connect to and to trust and to practice vulnerability with other people. It seems risky, uh, maybe even difficult, but that's only because it is. Uh, and like I said, it's the only way to get there. We also recognize that there are occasions in which it's best to ask the professionals. And I realize when I uh, talk, go on and on about counselors and therapy, uh, maybe most of you guys don't believe that therapists are reserved only for the criminally insane. But it's often surprising to me how often people that seem to me clearly in need of therapy think to themselves, oh, it's not that bad, as if to say mental health professionals are only for those of us that are on the verge of complete nervous breakdown and only then. And honestly, I'd guess, frankly, most of the people in this room are probably in need of counseling and therapy to some degree. Uh, I know I am. Uh, I'm in therapy. Most of the people in my community either have been or are in counseling right now by the grace of God. Thank you. And we need all, we're just drowning in therapists. We need every bit of it and more. Um, Because I, I, I realize I'm joking, but counselors can be an excellent resource in not only identifying broken relational patterns from your past story, but in working with you to eliminate them from your story to come. And once we've been informed by the past and allowed the past to change us, we can also allow the past to bless us. So one more time before we end tonight, turn with me to Genesis chapter 50. This is the conclusion to Joseph's story, uh, the subversive undoing of the sinful patterns of the past. So in the story, Joseph's father has died. His brothers are terrified that Joseph will now carry out what his brothers believe is rightfully his, which is vengeance against them for selling him into slavery and lying about their great evil for many years. Let's see what happens. Genesis 50, beginning in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers and their sins and all the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of your servants 
of the, God, uh, the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. If you remember anything about this long story from Genesis tonight, remember this. The past does not have to determine the future. God takes evil that he doesn't like, that he doesn't plan or ordain, and he somehow uses it creatively to do good. And of course, this motif doesn't begin and end with Joseph. The scriptures are filled with incredible stories of redemption just like this one. God is in the habit of subverting evil, repurposing stories, bringing hope and future out of dirt and ash. And agreeing to become a disciple of Jesus is about so much more than a system of belief or something that happens to you after you die. The way of Jesus is a new way of being a human being. And I stress that word new, meaning we are constantly putting away old patterns, old thoughts, old behaviors that we might look more like Jesus all the time. Joseph has this powerful statement, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. Another way of saying that might be, God has taken this evil in my family and he has repurposed it to do good for me, for us, and for our future as a family. These patterns of dysfunction in your past can be broken. The patterns of dysfunction in your present don't have to become the patterns of your future. God didn't plan or determine the sin in your story as if God needs some kind of tragedy to bless you. But God can subvert and redeem sin done by you. He can redeem sin done to you. And he can redeem sin done around you. But it won't happen if we ignore the dark closet of our past altogether. We have to unpack it with God in the context of the community of God's people with help so that God can use it for good. So with all that in mind, would you guys mind just standing up with me as we pray and ask the Spirit to come?